Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Okay, everybody, I believe I am live right now. I know there's a short delay, so I'm just going to turn that screen off for a minute. It's a pleasure to be with you once again. This is our second live stream. I know that there's uh, quite a bit of anticipation for the questions, the tough questions uh, that you'll be asking and that I'll be answering. I want to talk for about 15 minutes, and then I'll try and address as many of the tough questions questions as possible. I imagine that we'll keep going for 90 minutes. So we've got an hour and a half or so ahead of us. And maybe if I have the energy and there seems to be energy, we'll go even a little longer. But for now, I'm planning on 90 minutes. And I just want to do a quick check. Yep. Everything looks like it's in order. So let me begin by talking about what is a tough question. What does it mean to have to answer a tough question? Because uh, there are many different kinds of tough questions. There could be questions of a scientific nature that we just don't know the answer yet, or questions of a, a religious and theosophical and philosophical speculations where the best that we can do is, is try to come up with some logically coherent response there are questions you might ask about my personal attachments. Maybe I'm very attached to particular guests that you don't like for different reasons. And, and so you want to probe me about, you know, why am I attached to that? But it occurred to me that the most difficult question that any of us can answer is questions about our own shadow side, about our own darkness. And you see, while I was contemplating what I would be saying during this live stream, I had a dream. And and the dream really provided an answer for me. And it was not a comfortable answer, to be honest, because the dream was a nightmare. I had it just a couple of nights ago. And uh, it, it was horrible. I was on a mountaintop somewhere and I had a treasure. I had a valuable treasure. But people were coming, thieves, Criminals, they wanted that treasure, and I knew I had to get away from them. And I managed to get away from these criminals, but I'm still up on the mountaintop. I didn't, I couldn't escape. The exit was blocked, and I had to watch because they had captured other people on the mountaintop and were trying to force them to reveal the treasure. Well, they couldn't. I had the treasure, but I had to watch as these people were being tortured. I mean, in my nightmare, I could see through the bushes into where where the criminals had a a cabin and they had hostages and they had big blades and they were chopping these people up into pieces. And I woke up and I was just terrified, uh, you know, having seen this image, this horrible image. I don't normally get nightmares, I can tell you that. My dreams are usually very pleasant. And so in the middle of the night, I got up to meditate and contemplate, what did this dream mean? Why did I have such an awful dream? 
And as I began thinking about it, I realized a few things. First of all, let me just say this. The dream was probably triggered by an event going on uh, here in the house, here in New Mexico, where I live. This year is one of the years when these gray moths appear, and, and we found like 40 of them or more in the house. And uh, I, uh, being the householder, decided they don't belong here. It was too many. They were dive bombing at my wife. And, and so I managed to hunt them and kill them, and I used a, a vacuum cleaner to suck them up, and the vacuum cleaner, you could actually, it's one of those see-through, you could see their little bodies spinning around, and they're being dismembered in the vacuum cleaner, and then I'd empty the vacuum cleaner into the toilet, and, and the moths would be, their wings would be torn off, their bodies would be well, really almost shredded, but the moths could still be alive. I could see their little feet moving, and uh, it kind of tore at me, because I'm, I don't like killing animals. You know, if there's spiders in the house, I'll catch them and set them free, but these moths, uh, 40 of them or more in the house, was a whole other matter. And, and so I'd flush them down the toilet out of the vacuum cleaner as fast as I could because I, I didn't want them to suffer any more than they had to. I wanted to end their life quickly. So while I'm meditating, thinking about this dream, it dawned on me, you know, every image that appears in a dream is a reflection of my psyche. So I'm not just the innocent guy looking through the woods, watching people being killed in the dream. I'm the woods. I'm the cabin. I'm the criminals. I'm the one who's torturing and mutilating. That's all part of my psyche. And I might say, incidentally, that uh, coming up in the next couple of weeks are going to be a few interviews with a wonderful and amazing, profound author named Paul Levy from Portland whose great insight is that this waking reality is a dream as well. Just as Shakespeare said, we are the stuff that dreams are made of. So the actual killing of the moths is just as much a dream or created out of dream stuff as, as the dream was. So it dawned on me, yes, this is me. Uh, I mean, those moths might be... My relatives, you, you know, in some cultures, <laughs> that's what it's believed. And I want to show you exactly what I mean by that. These people you see here are not suffering from COVID virus at all. These are Jain or Jain worshippers in India. They cover their mouths like this so that they don't accidentally swallow any insects. And you'll see they're carrying brooms with them, which they use to brush aside any insects that might be in the path in front of them so that they don't accidentally kill an insect. It was from the Jain religion that the concept of ahimsa, or nonviolence, evolved some 2,500 years ago, the same concept that influenced Martin Luther King and Gandhi to develop very powerful, profound, nonviolent protests in our own era. 
So I'm a pacifist. I'm influenced by these people. You know, it hurts me in in my heart, actually, to have to kill moths. And all of this realization came to me as I was meditating after the nightmare. And the interesting thing is, I went back to bed. It's still four or five in the morning. I had another dream, and it was a continuation of the original dream. And I'm back up on the mountaintop, and I have the treasure. Only now, some people have come to see the treasure, and they're peaceful, happy people, and I show it to them, and everything is friendly all of a sudden. So, what the dream was telling me, I believe, is that by acknowledging my dark side, by acknowledging that I could kill those living sentient beings, those moths, and do it without any empathy for them. At least I had to acknowledge that. I'm capable of that. It doesn't mean I will act it out, certainly not with humans. I'm afraid uh, if, if more moths come in this house, I will. I will do it, but I'll try to do it compassionately. It occurred to me... I'll, Try to end their lives as quickly as I can without suffering, without causing them to suffer. And it dawned on me, sometimes humans do that. You know, if you're in a prisoner of war situation, you might do somebody a favor by killing them rather than by torturing them slowly. Well, that was my way of addressing the dark side. And I think the dark side also manifests itself in, in other ways. I've talked about this in some of the previous in-presence monologues about Rudolf Steiner's concept, for example, of the guardian of the threshold, the greater and the lesser guardians of the threshold, the initiators. And when you see them, they are the most horrible-looking Images you could imagine, grotesque, demonic, ugly as can be, but they are a reflection of ourselves. And when we can recognize our shadow side, we can also see that it comes with gifts of its own. It's very powerful. In fact, it may be in some ways connected to our strengths, our, our, even our psychic abilities in some way. It's important to recognize our potential for behaving that way. The, to me, the most dangerous people on this planet are the ones who conceive of themselves as being all good and evil is somewhere outside of them. And I know, I hear from viewers, they say the evil ones are the Catholics, the evil ones are the Jews, the evil ones are the military, the evil ones, it's always something outside of yourself. But the first place to look for evil, the first place to transform it alchemically, is within. And I have to tell you, these interviews uh, that are about to come up, such as the ones with Paul Levy, but not just Paul Levy, uh, several of the other guests coming up in the next 30 days or so are going to address this question of coming to terms with, you know, our own darkness, doing our own shadow work. Now, uh, I know there are many questions, and uh, I've given you my little introduction on what I thought would be uh, one of the hardest things to address, my own darkness. Um, now, 
I'll begin to uh, look at, the, I, we have moderators who have already posed many, many questions. So, uh, oh, here's a really good one. Uh, Uber driver says, is it possible someone like President Trump could be enlightened and he's actually a good guy working for the greater good? And, and there's a paradox uh, involved in that question because... <laughs> I hate President Trump, and I love President Trump, and, and I'll explain why. Now, I don't think President Trump, uh, at least at the ego level, is enlightened. But I have to say this, and this is really the basis from which I would answer all of the most difficult questions. If I look within myself to the very basement level, to the foundation of who I am, I come to what I would call the ground of being, the source. And the source of who I am, as has been well explicated in Vedanta philosophy and the Upanishads, when they say Atman, meaning the essence of the soul, equals Brahman, the essence of the universe. The, my source is the same as your source, is the same as Donald Trump's source, is the same as the source of everything in the universe from the most distant galaxies to the tiniest of molecules, to the most elevated saints, to the most horrible sinners. We all come from the same source. And in that sense, everything is enlightened. Everything is already unified. We are all one, as, as, as Christians might say, we are all one in Christ, or we will become one in the cosmic Christ at the end of time, as Teilhard de Chardin might say. That's my bottom line. I identify with the whole universe. So things that people may think of as, as just awful, you know, there are people who think Donald Trump is, is, is a savior. I don't. But at a deeper level, I think, you know, the universe as a whole is good, including every bad thing within it. Here's another question. Moon Rose asks, with the current state of the world, how can humanity overcome the current oppression when all other avenues of resistance have already been attempted through history? How do we take back Earth? You know, I had an interesting email exchange recently with my friend James Tunney, the Irishman who lives in Sweden, whose videos we've been releasing, and I had a discussion with him about the phrase from Jesus, resist not evil. I really think Jesus was onto something when he said, resist not evil. Now, you, you could look at the Second World War and say, yeah, we had to resist the evil of, of, of the Nazis. And uh, sure, but with it now as a result, we've become like them. And James pointed out that, you know, his understanding of uh, mysticism and religious theology is that, yes, we cannot simply acquiesce to evil. We have to resist evil. But here's the point he made, and this comes back to my discussion of the Jains. We have to resist nonviolently. Resisting evil doesn't mean becoming 
like the evil that we resist. And there are some great examples of of this, of course, Gandhi and Martin Luther King are, are two of the greatest examples of what can be accomplished through nonviolent resistance. And, and one of the points my uh, friend Stefan Schwartz, who wrote The Eight Laws of Change and who has been interviewed over 20 times on this channel, uh, points out is that the change that comes from nonviolent resistance tends to be more permanent than the changes that come through violent warfare, revolution, and the like. So, I mean, that's a question historians can look at, but uh, I have to agree uh, with James at this point. It's very important to resist evil. It's very important to stand up against evil, and it's necessary to do it non Violently. Now, in, in the case of the Salt March, uh, for which Gandhi is famous in England, you could say it was nonviolent, but those people marched to the sea to uh, collect salt. It was against the law. The British wanted to sell the salt, as I recall. But uh, they had British soldiers there, and uh, they were clubbing these people uh, brutally. I mean, nonviolence doesn't mean that you're not going to be the victim of violence, unfortunately. It's a willingness to be that victim. And, uh, you know, that was publicized before the whole world, the brutality of the British Empire in India. It's one of the main reasons that they realized they had to give up their colonial control of the Indian subcontinent. A major, major change that was affected by Gandhi without an army, without weapons. He had an army of nonviolent resistors, you might say. Um, Eric Olson says, can I please speak out on Osho, Bhagavan Sri Rajneesh and his movement? Surprised that he's never heard mention of it in my interviews. I, I don't know a lot about uh, Rajneesh. I've, I've met some of his followers. You, you know, having been around as long as I have been, I can say, yes, my good friend Ted Mann, sociologist at the University of Toronto, actually wrote a book about him and his movement. The thing about gurus like Rajneesh is, uh, I don't doubt that the man was brilliant, but I have to say, Simply this, I agree with James Tunney 100% that uh, you don't need to surrender your sovereignty, your sovereignty over yourself to a guru. And, and that includes all the gurus who would like to set themselves up as petty dictators, period. So, yes, there are many positive things one could say about Rajneesh, but for my money, for what I stand for, for what new thinking allowed is is all about, is uh, we have inherited the spiritual traditions of the whole world. All gurus, all teachings are part of our inheritance. And, and we should try and appreciate them for what they're worth. They're wonderful teachings. And, and I know Rajneesh has said some wonderful things, but never, never, never surrender your personal autonomy, uh, even if it is God himself in the form of Jesus Christ or uh, the Buddha, 
As far as I'm concerned, don't do it. Now, you don't have to take it from me. I don't want you not to do it because I said so, but that's what I say. Dare Perea 1 says, Is it possible to be free from fear? No, I don't think so. I, I think fear is part of our biological nature. You, you know, like a little bird, a little sparrow. If you see one on your lawn and you walk close to it, it'll fly away. It's afraid of you. And we, in our nervous system, we're like th- those sparrows. You know, we, we have that kind of fear. So we're never going to be free from fear. But what we can be is courageous in the face of fear. We can acknowledge our fear just as we acknowledge other aspects of our own darkness. And when we acknowledge it, then it doesn't have the same grip on us as it might otherwise, particularly in dreams. You know, there can be all kinds of fearful things that occur to us in dreams. We're running away from a monster. But if in your dream, if you can be lucid to the extent that you can turn around and face the monster, often you find that uh, something nice is going to happen when we face our inner demons instead of run away from them. Prana Narayanan says, please comment on the state of affairs of parapsychology research as you see it and the path forward. Well, I've done several interviews on the future of parapsychology. Um, The state of affairs is always in flux. Let me let me say that. And, and right now, parapsychology is a tiny, highly marginalized field. I mean, you can imagine how I feel having earned a doctoral degree in parapsychology 40 years ago, and nobody before me or since has a doctoral diploma from an accredited university that says parapsychology. That's an enormous statement about how marginalized the field is. And yet, on the other hand, we have, what, 76,000 followers on the New Thinking Aloud channel right now, largely, I think, because you're interested in parapsychology. And millions of people worldwide, which is why I think this channel has great potential for growth. I think that the day will come, probably in 200 years, when Parapsychology will be central to our whole culture. It may not be called parapsychology at that point because it'll be integrated into other sciences. But that's what I imagine. It's so much on the outside now. And, but these things happen. They're called paradigm shifts. I'll give you an example. Uh, 300 years ago, I believe it was, maybe less, which is here in the United States were burned at the stake. Today, the paradigm is, oh, witchcraft doesn't exist. And that's really the the paradigm concerning parapsychology, in effect. Witchcraft doesn't exist, therefore parapsychology can't be real. Well, before we can shift the paradigm, the culture has to mature to the point where we can acknowledge that what we used to call witchcraft, the sorcery, you know, the things people are fearful of, 
today, the rising tide of occultism, the uh, depths of the subconscious mind, they all kind of interweave. We have to mature spiritually so that we, as a culture, can address our own depths, our own darkness. When people can look inside of themselves and not be afraid of what they see and not be uh, defensive. You know, Freud developed a whole theory of defense mechanisms, the things that we do to prevent ourselves from recognizing that which is inside of us. We don't want to know what's in our own minds. Well, it has to change on a cultural level before parapsychology will be widely accepted. So, I don't know, maybe it'll take a million years instead of 300 or 200. It could take a long time, perhaps, for humans to be able to accept who we are inside ourselves. But, you know, in terms of geological or cosmological time, even a million years isn't very long. Der Paria 1 says, Do you think we have chosen to be born in this family that we live? If yes, can we change the family karma? Well, you're asking me to speculate about metaphysics. Um, and I, if I had to, and it really is a speculation because I don't have any anything solid to go on here, but my best guess is, yes, we do choose our circumstances. And my sense is that in between lifetimes, when this choice is made, we have spiritual guides, we have... Uh, Advisors were able to see things from a higher perspective. We're able to understand the lessons that we need to learn. We have a much deeper sense of the purpose of life and why we would go through such a drama as this. And the second part of the question was, if yes, can we change the family karma? Well, that's usually what it's about. Why we go into, let's say, a situation of abuse, then you know what? <clears throat> the interview that I referred to earlier with Paul Levy, interview number two with Paul Levy, it may not be released until early June, I think. He talks about growing up in a family that was so abusive. It drove him crazy, literally right into the arms of the psychiatric system and into the criminal justice system as well. It took him some 40 years to come to terms with it. But one of the points he makes is that if you look at the ancient mystical traditions such as Kabbalah from Judaism, but not just that, you see that one of our purposes here is, is to free the sparks of light, the sparks of divine light that are shrouded in darkness. That's part of our mission, and that comes through changing the family karma. It doesn't mean we always succeed in, in doing it, but we are probably here to give it our best effort. Dare Paria one <laughs> what is the meaning of life? Now, everybody's going to have their own answer for that. The nihilists say there is no meaning. The existentialists say we provide the meaning. The meaning of life is, is what you give it. Uh, my answer is 
the meaning of life and maybe the purpose of life is to live life as fully as you can. To find meaning, to make meaning, and, and to uh, do it in every way you possibly can, to pursue your passion. I feel so grateful that I made choices in my lifetime to pursue my passion. Those were the best decisions I ever made. Rosanna says, How long do the souls of, the de- of dead relatives stay around us? Oh, boy. I can only speculate about something like that. And and my best speculation is that it's different for each person. That uh, when you die, you're returning to a realm beyond space and time that we know, a realm of spirit. There are many different options available. You can hang around the physical plane and communicate with your relatives. Uh... I think typically that might occur for two to three weeks. Uh, for some people who who are dedicated, like uh, psychical researchers who really want to prove from the other side the existence of survival, they might uh, be engaged in, in some kind of communication for years. Uh, I don't think everybody necessarily gets reborn. I think you can just merge into the light if if you're ready to do that as is said in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. I do think that reincarnation is a possibility uh, for some, maybe many. I don't know how many. I don't think everyone necessarily has to reincarnate. Uh, some people, when they die, they don't know that they're dead, so they just kind of hang around, and, and they, they think they're still alive, actually, even though it's a very strange experience for them. And uh, they may hang around for a longer time. Other people known as hungry ghosts, they, they still have their addictions uh, for tobacco, for sex, for alcohol, for um, emotional excitement. They may hang around longer. Other people are, are ready to move on faster. So, um, <laughs> you know, like with everything else, I think there's a bell curve. Maya Iseva says, Dear Jeffrey, thank you for your hard work. What do you find most fascinating and mind-boggling in the field of parapsychology? Well, if you read my book uh, about my study of Ted Owens, the PK man, that's some of the most mind-boggling material I have ever encountered. But you see... Maya, there's there's something much deeper than all of the uh, titillating excitement that can come from parapsychology, and it's what I would call the mystery of being altogether. Why does something exist? Why does anything exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? The great miracle is that we're here at all. The great miracle is this conversation right here and now, as mundane as it may seem, using um, electronic technology. That's the most mind-boggling thing, is, is that we exist. James Skinner says, Jeffrey, how does someone become a guest on your program? I love the easygoing atmosphere you have with your guests and how you're able to roll with your guests. Well, thank you. Um, 
many different ways. A lot of guests are old friends of, of mine. And, you know, I've been doing interviews like this since 1972. So I have a backlog of, <laughs> I don't know, about a, many hundreds of people still alive and probably a few hundred who have passed on. But so I draw on people whose work I know. And very often, the viewers will suggest someone and I'll look into it and or people will send me their books and I'll check them out. And, for example, James Tunney, who has now become one of our most popular guests, sent me his book, The Mystical Accord. And, and it sat around in my library for a few months before I actually had the time to look at it seriously. And when I did, I recognized that this is a, a man of great profundity. And invited him to to come to Albuquerque, and he hopped on a jet plane and flew from Sweden to New Mexico to, to be interviewed. So it can happen like that. Uh, I have to feel uh, a certain uh, intuitive sense that that this is going to work out well, and um, so it's very subjective at the end of the day. Uh, who, who I'm going to select, but to, on the top of my list are people who are making contributions to the field of parapsychology and uh, in one way or another. And I mean that in the, the broadest sense of, of parapsychology. Those people are going to get the uh, greatest priority in terms of uh, being interviewed by me on this channel. Jenny Rook says... Have you ever interviewed a committed atheist, someone like Richard Dawkins? Would you ever consider doing so? Um, I don't recall that I've ever interviewed a committed atheist about atheism. I have no objections to, to doing that. Uh, you know, the Buddha was an atheist. The, uh, it's not as if you can't be a very spiritual person and, and be an atheist. So I suspect I've interviewed atheists. I'm not sure that I'm not an atheist in, in the same sense that the Buddha was. I think uh, there's a lot to be said for atheism. However, if you combine atheism with dogmatic scientism and uh, a kind of sneering attitude towards anything uh, uh, associated with religion, like Richard Dawkins often does, I have little use for that. I, uh, I think uh, there are many ways that you can criticize conventional religion, and Richard Dawkins does a good job of that. But I, other than that, I think uh, for all of his brilliance, he was a relatively shallow thinker. Henry Bolanos says, What is the relationship of nature to consciousness? That's an interesting question, and I can't claim that I could give you an authoritative answer. It's In some ways, it's metaphysical, but <clears throat> I lean towards the uh, philosophy of uh, Bernardo Castrup, who's been interviewed on this channel many times, and we have more interviews planned. Bernardo is a metaphysical idealist, and basically he would say, Consciousness comes first. Before nature existed, there was consciousness. And nature exists within 
consciousness. In fact, everything we consider, the physical world, the three-dimensional world of space and time, is made out of mind stuff, consciousness itself. That's the view towards which I lean. And let me just say this. I can perfectly understand somebody saying the opposite, saying, no, nature comes first. Consciousness emerges out of nature. It might seem equally true. And and here's the paradox that I want to get to. And that is, I think there are different levels to reality. And when you're at one level, it's obvious that consciousness comes first. When you're at another level, it's obvious that nature comes first. And reality itself is so paradoxical that they can both be true. Hossein Yusufi, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, says, Hello, Jeffrey, what is the toughest enigma or question you have ever faced? I remember when I was 10 years old, I used to do a funny thing. I, I, <laughs> I would climb up to the rooftop of our little house in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. It was a big house, it was a two-story home. And I'm sitting up on the roof, looking down at all the people outside walking around. And I'd ask myself, I'd see my little body there up on the roof, and I'd see other people out in the street driving in their cars and uh, walking on the sidewalk. And I'd say to myself, why am I me? How did I get in this body? Why am I not in their body or on a different planet or in a different city? How did I end up here? Uh, I've been asking that question ever since I was 10 years old. I'm not sure I have the answer yet. Carrie Matchett asks, do you think people are under CIA capture? And if so, do you think people can bend reality in order to reverse the action on them? Carrie, I think there's a lot of paranoia going on around things like this. Um, I hear all the time from people who say, you know, there are people who are beaming radio transmissions into my mind uh, and trying to control me. Lots of times, I think what goes on in those circumstances, and I can't say in any particular circumstance, but lots of times, people are projecting. They're projecting their own psyche, maybe even their own inner darkness out on upon the CIA or upon the KGB or upon, uh, you know, the Satanists or the Illuminati who are trying to control them. Uh, I think sometimes you have to work through that. It's an inner process to regain sovereignty over your own mind. It often requires a lot of counseling. Um, you know, the interviews with Paul Levy that are coming up, I think, will be very helpful in in this regard, because he felt like he became possessed by a, a demonic force, a demonic force that came from within his own family. It took him decades to work through that. But so, sometimes that's our job. So, uh, of course, 
we know that the, the CIA, and not just the CIA, but all sorts of uh, agencies and uh, of governments are engaged in nefarious activities of a secretive nature. But I suspect that often, many, many times, when people believe that they are being uh, hounded by these organizations, what's really going on is they are being hounded by an aspect of their own psyche that they have to come to terms with. That's one of the reasons why I introduced this entire live stream with a discussion about, you know, coming to terms with our own inner darkness. Purple Pipkin asks, why do so many people who have paranormal experiences forget them or write them off as a trick of the mind? Is it our mind's way of coping or is there an external agency erasing high strangeness? That's a good question, Purple Pipkin. And here's what I think. We are all magicians. We are all very, very psychic. However, some of us don't want to live in a world where psychic phenomena are real. And, and there are good reasons. I mentioned we don't even want to know what's in our own mind, let alone having other people know what's in our own mind. If you don't want to face your own inner darkness and your own inner fears, you don't want someone else to be able to see them either. So it, it's much more comfortable for you to live in a world where psychic functioning doesn't exist. And uh, the best way to live in such a world is to behave as if it doesn't exist and hope everyone else behaves the same way. And there's, so there's that enormous social pressure. But again, we're the ones creating it. I once had an opportunity when I was a graduate student at Berkeley. Arthur C. Clarke came and spoke the great science fiction writer. And he had written some negative things in uh, Time magazine about Uri Geller, the psychic. Uh, <clears throat> I sponsored, incidentally, Uri Geller's first major public appearance in the United States, and it was at Berkeley. But I raised my hand and I said, Mr. Clark, do you believe in ESP? And he gave me the most honest answer I've ever heard. He said, no, I don't, because I don't want anybody to read my mind. I think that's what it's all about. Okay, new questions. This is from, I can't actually tell who it's from. I would like to ask... Uh, the Seth material, my thoughts, and the influence it had on you. Any plans on inviting someone with knowledge? Uh, the Seth material has had very little influence on me. I've read one of the books, the book I like the best by uh, Jane Roberts, the, the author of the Seth books, was um, The Education of Oversoul Seven. It was a novel. 
<clears throat> I hope someday somebody makes it into a movie. The idea is that this is an oversoul that has a responsibility for seven personalities, each living in a different time frame and, and a different historical period, but simultaneously, and because the oversoul is outside of space and time, they all influence each other. It's very interesting. So I think Jane Roberts is a very brilliant, creative writer, but the Seth material has, has had a minimal influence on me. And, and that's probably true of almost all channeled material. Um, I find it fascinating, um, but I can't say of all the profound influences on me, it's not high on the list. Jao Camacho. Would I moderate a debate between Jason Giorgiani and Jordan Peterson? Interesting topics between them. The Noble Lie, Iran in the West, Mithras and Hermes. Thank you. Are, are you inviting me to moderate a debate? <laughs> yeah, if somebody invites me to do it, I probably would, but I have no interest in organizing such a debate. Luis Castro. Hello, Dr. Mishlove. If you could please answer a two-part question. What is my opinion on DMT and near-death experiences and how they relate to each other? Who were your most influential guests? Thanks. That's not a two-part question. That's two separate questions. Um, I've never taken DMT, so I don't have much to say about it, although I've interviewed several people about DMT. I've taken lots of psychedelics, I can say that, and enjoyed them. So, in that sense, I'm more favorably inclined than negatively inclined towards DMT. Um, but when I interviewed Rick Strassman about the spiritual implications of DMT, he really put it, as I recall, in a very straightforward manner. And he said, if you're spiritually inclined already, your DMT experience will produce a spiritual experience, but otherwise it will not. And again, I guess it goes back to Timothy Leary's dictum about set and setting. I think near-death experiences are very profound and very real and very important. And Yes, psychedelic drugs can help provoke that same awareness of a much larger consciousness of which we partake. And many reports of, of DMT suggest that that's so. And not just DMT, but other psychedelics as well. Who were my most influential guests? Well... The one guest uh, who has had the greatest impact on me over the years, and I haven't interviewed her on the new Thinking Aloud series, but on the original Thinking Aloud series, was Jean Houston. Jean Houston, I have the highest admiration for her, the greatest respect for her. She had uh, probably the most profound impact on my life, uh, if there's one living person who I consider a, a great role model, although she's far more talented than I am, it would be Jean Houston. <clears throat> oh, oh, another question from Luis Castro. Let him elaborate. Who influenced me the most or made a permanent impression on me? Well, 
That, I answered that. Gene Houston. L.C. Moore. I'd like to ask why you haven't had Peter Kingsley on your program. You have shown much interest in his work. Yeah, I'd love to get Peter Kingsley. Uh, I hope it will happen. The last I heard, he was on a remote island somewhere, taking uh, time to be in solitude uh, in, in the middle of the Mediterranean without even good Internet access. So, uh if it happens, it happens. There, You know, there are a lot of other people I'd like to interview, and I just don't know uh, if it's because they're busy or they have higher priorities, whether we'll get them or not. Another one is Alejandro Yadorowski. I'd really love to interview him, but he's busy making movies. L.C. Moore. Oh, that no, I just answered that question. David Smith. My question is, do you do any meditation practice? If yes, can you elaborate on the technique, duration, etc.? You know, in my life, I've practiced many different kinds of meditation, transcendental meditation, kundalini yoga meditation, Buddhist meditation. I'm at a point in my life now where I... You know, when I do the in-present series, it's about being present moment by moment. And I can't say I've arrived there, but my ideal is that moment by moment, every moment is a meditation. Every moment is about being mindful and about being present. Now, that said, I tend to meditate in the middle of the night, if I cannot sleep, if I find myself wide awake in the middle of the night, I will use it as an opportunity to sit and meditate. I don't have any set routine or ritual or uh, length of time. I just sit without any agenda whatsoever and see what happens. That's my meditation. Dare Paria 1, do you think that we have chosen to be born? Well, no, I answered that question. It's been asked again. Uh, Mind Science Alchemy, is Ted Owen's instructions available? And would you say that the program is a derivative of Silvermine Control? Uh, what I have is an audio file of the original training I took in 1986 with Ted Owens when I was in a hotel with him and, and he hypnotized me almost the whole time. So it's all hypnotic experiences. I don't know, it's maybe three or four or five hours total of hypnotic inductions. And I, to my knowledge, Ted Owens developed this training program before Jose Silva ever showed up uh, with Silva Mind Control. Maybe there's some overlap. For all I know, Silva borrowed it from Ted Owens, although I doubt that. Okay. I see some questions are getting in here uh, multiple times. I'm going to um, speed forward um, a little bit. I'm sorry if I overlook some questions, but it appears there are going to be many more than I really have time to address. Nothing is as it seems, says. My question, do you think we have premonitions because they will come true in our future? Are they like a sneak preview of our future? Well, often it happens that way. 
Sometimes people have premonitions for the purpose of avoiding uh, what may come. You know, there have been studies about uh, disasters where uh, when there, someone did a, uh, William Cox was the parapsychologist, as I recall, who did this research on train crashes, and he found that the numbers of passengers on the trains that crashed was less than the passengers on the same train uh, a week before, same day of the week, or uh, the day before, or the day after. Uh, so it appears as if sometimes people get premonitions in order to avoid uh, what might be a, a disastrous situation. I, I recall talking to a soldier who was in Vietnam where he had a premonition to turn around and fire his gun, and he did, and uh, was able to, in, in that case, kill a Viet Cong who was about to kill him. So uh, premonitions can be true premonitions, or they can be warning premonitions, or they can be fantasies <laughs> of our own mind as as well. Adora Inanna says, hello, Jeff, love your show. Thanks for the opportunity to get to know you better. Well, thank you. Dilibi says, what is the motive behind the pandemic? How interesting. People are asking, you know, was it the Chinese? Was it Bill Gates? Was it, who's the evil person who's killing people all around the planet? Is it, is it the Democrats? Uh, is it, uh, anyway, uh, I think the best answer I've heard to that so far comes once again from my guest, Paul Levy, who says that he thinks the endemic is a projection of the psychic virus. He calls it the Watiko. Some, uh, and it's a Native American term, sometimes called Wendigo. Or you could think of it as Satan. Satan is the, the demons. But remember, they're not some kind of metaphysical evil. It's a projection of our own inner darkness. And it manifests itself in the physical world because this world, as I said earlier, is the stuff that dreams are made of. We are collectively creating the pandemic. Don't try and blame it on any person or organization. We're all responsible. Sigfredo Sarabia. Or Sigifredo Sarabia. Hello, Dr. Mishlove. I can't figure this. Any thought on alien agenda in their eyes? I heard people say they're demons attacking in dreams but leaving physical skin marks. If to destroy us, there's no chance. So, great question. And really, listen carefully now. This goes back to what I described earlier as the ground of being. We and the aliens, the demons, the dark forces share the very same ground of being. It's not us poor victims and them horrible whatever's out there trying to do something to us. They are us. I know that's sometimes hard to take in. It's hard to understand. Maybe you ought to watch one of the greatest science fiction films ever made. 
Forbidden Planet. It came, I was eight years old, I think, in 1954 when it came out. And it's on this other planet where the Krell are the extinct civilization who lived, but they had this technology and they were able through this technology to manifest their own thoughts. So this um, human scientist who is living on this planet learns how to use the technology and, and the visitors who come on a flying saucer from Earth in the future are plagued by the demons haunting them on this planet. Eventually they learn it's the monsters of the id created by the doctor who's jealous that the da- his young daughter is falling in love with one of the spacefaring adventurers from Earth. It's all us, every bit of it, just as in a dream. Every element of the dream is part of your psyche. This world, this physical world that we are so seduced into thinking is separate from ourselves. No, it's not separate from ourselves. Everything you see out there, the most horrible, ugly things, the things that scare you the most, it's part of yourself. It's part of our self. We're all part of each other. It's part of our collective psyche, and we're not going to ever master it until we come to own it. Agnes Jones says, What paranormal activity would you most like to investigate more? What piques your curiosity the most? Well, I'm a generalist. You know, my very first book, published in 1975, the first edition, was The Roots of Consciousness. Uh, When it was published in a new edition in 1987, they called it the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Consciousness. So my mind is encyclopediac, and I love it all, every bit of it. I don't think that anything is more important than anything else, ironically, because it's all us. Every part of it is us. And the great mystery is why we're here at all. So, sure, I love UFOs. I love life after death. I love remote viewing. I've got an interview coming up with Sean McNamara. It'll be released in about a month talking about training psychokinesis. So, um, all of these things pique my interest. All of it does. That's why I do so many hundreds of programs here. They're, you know, the, the most trivial, boring subject, uh, like uh, the Peruvian soil reports or something, are just as interesting to me as the tip of my nose. Well, okay, that's an exaggeration, but anyway. Typo Dev. How does spirituality address the lapse of consciousness under anesthesia? Okay, that's a fascinating question. And, of course, the person who addresses that question most is Stuart Hameroff, the anesthesiologist who founded the uh, Toward a Science of Consciousness conferences in Tucson. So, Uh, He's been looking at this question of the lapse of consciousness under anesthesia, how and why that happens, and has come up with a very highly evolved theory. It's called Orc 
or in which he relates quantum geometry to the question of uh, the operation of consciousness within the nerve cells and the microtubules within the nerve cells. So fundamentally, he, he, ha- he has a physical model. It's very controversial. It's I don't think it's widely accepted on the one hand, and on the other hand, I don't think it's been refuted adequately either. Um, on the, and on the other hand, I'm not necessarily the most qualified person to give you a detailed understanding of it. But if you want to dig into the answer to that question, I would look into Stuart Hameroff's Orc-Or theory in which he he looks at consciousness and its relationship to the collapse of the wave function and the nervous system and and how anesthesia operates in in that regard. Fire Tools says, Thank you for everything you do and for helping enrich my journey. You are very welcome. Rob Trump asks, Would you espouse a religion if it could be logically proven to be the only possible explanation for all the variety of human experience and prior belief? Um, I would entertain espousing such a religion if it could be logically proven uh, like that. I I guess... uh, one one would have to um, take that very seriously. And I have done some videos in the past uh, regarding what I call the theology of uh, the third millennium. Uh, so I, I think it's possible that we could come up with a, a theological understanding, which is really quite consistent with science and, and with uh, consciousness. And um, I see it's been an hour. Uh, so I, my intention would be to go for another half hour for those of you who can uh, stick with me. Harlan Muller asks, What are the limitations of scientific methods in the study of the paranormal and the spiritual? You know, empirical science is typically based on things that you can see, feel, touch, taste, and smell and hear. In other words, the empirical method implies gathering data through the use of the senses. And so, spiritual realities that are beyond the five senses have often been considered beyond the reach of empirical science. Like uh, if I was to ask about your spirit guides... If there's no empirical way to measure spirit guides or measure past lives or measure the aura, if these things exist somehow outside of empirical measuring tools, then that might be a limit of science. But then William James, before he died, wrote a wonderful essay on what he called radical empiricism, in which he claimed that direct experience of consciousness, that's the most immediate experience we have, that has to be included in empirical science. That really opens up the door widely to other approaches. So I don't think we have yet found the limits of uh, how these things can be studied. And I'm sure 
a hundred years from now, ten years from now, people will be devising new things. So, you know, John Lilly once wrote in his book, uh, Programming and Metaprogramming of the Human Biocomputer, he said there are no limits to the human mind except the limits that we think we have, that we create through our thoughts. And then even those limits are to be transcended. And I suspect the same is true of the scientific method itself. <clears throat> Harlan Muller says, what? Oh, no, I just answered that question. J. Cathy. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Well, anyway, do you employ any of Norm Shealy's energy medicine advice? Uh, I take vitamin C. I, uh, I think that's important. I try to exercise. I try to eat healthy uh, foods as, as much as I can, but I don't uh, avoid all sugar. I probably have more sugar than I ought. Uh, I think Norm Shealy uh, is in many ways a role model. Look at the man. He's 87 years old and healthy as can be, even though he's had serious medical problems in his life. So, um, yes, I uh, I employ uh, his recommendations, and that's why I made a point of posting his recommendations for COVID-19. Uh, and not only that, we've even made a point of translating that particular interview into six or seven other foreign languages. The transcripts are now available on if you log on to that video into the in the descriptions uh, uh, that accompany the video. Adam Callan says, can all the suffering in the world be justified by a greater purpose? That is a very deep question. Uh, I think in theory, yes, it can be. Uh, you know who addresses that? It's Stanislav Grof in his book, The Cosmic Game, where he points out, you know, from one perspective, the human perspective, this suffering is wasteful. It is not justified at all. It's tragic. And yet, from another perspective, it's, it's sort of all, all a big joke. <laughs> it could even be something that you would laugh at. That, uh, that there's something funny about it, that we would take it so seriously uh, to begin with. Now, it's easy for me to say that. It's not easy if you're suffering. But this is an example of what I described earlier, that things from one level of reality seem a certain set way. That suffering is tragic and can't be viewed any other way to suffering is part of a cosmic game and ought not to be viewed from any other way. The, the thing is that both of those realities are true within their own framework. Kevin asks, do you think one can become possessed or invaded by spirits during an ayahuasca trip? Yes and no. Uh, I think possession is quite real, but I, I want to go back once again to this discussion of the ground of being. There doesn't exist such a thing as a spirit that doesn't partake of the same ground of being as you and me. The, if we go to the bottom line, the bottom line is the line articulated by the mystics of all cultures and all ages who say, we are one. 
So any spirit that may possess you is ultimately an aspect of yourself. And for my money, that's the only way you're going to come to terms with it. Fidget Gadget says, Can thinking of a crush bother the person? If you've got a crush on somebody, or uh, maybe to put it even more strongly, if you're masturbating while you're thinking of that person, is that going to affect them at some level in their psyche? Why not? Because, uh, you see, telepathy is real, and, and we are all connected with each other. Every thought that we have ripples out into the universe. So they may not ever know, or they may. Yes, a sensitive person would understand and would feel that. I think if we're ever going to live in a world in which parapsychological phenomena are are accepted, you have to come to terms with uh, things like that. that, You know, the need for us to take responsibility for our thoughts and for the thoughts of others. Manuel Orantia says, Do you know who the NASA scientist and quantum physicist Tom Campbell? He is the author of My Big Toe with the Virtual World Model. He also is known to be an avid astral projection advocate. Yes, I know of Tom Campbell. I do know of him. He has a very popular YouTube channel. Um, Aaron P., says, what are the latest developments in experimental micro-PK? Is there an experimenter continuing the work of Dean Radin? I would say this, that that experimental micro-PK is kind of in a standstill right now. Dean Radin did some very interesting work, and many other people have, uh, at this point, the researchers in the field are sort of still arguing whether it's psychokinesis or a form of precognition, which is called uh, DAT, data augmentation theory, uh, as I recall. Uh, people quarrel about it. I um, I don't see a lot of progress in that field right now. Um, it's not particularly well-funded, <laughs> like all parapsychology research. So, uh, I guess, you know, William James once wrote over a hundred years ago about psychical research, the, the field that is sort of the progenitor of parapsychology. He, he wrote, we can't expect progress in this field decade by decade as in other disciplines because it's such a profound field. We have to expect progress by the century and the half century. So I, I think that's a good question for your grandchildren to come back and ask in another 50 years. Let's see, uh, where we've gone with it then. BP. What are the glowing orbs which sometimes appear in photography? I have a video of one of these playing with my German shepherd. Small, maybe six inches in diameter. And 
I'm not an expert on in photography, but I know that there are various artifacts that can be caused by uh, light, uh, a flare, a light flare reflecting in a lens. Um, I've even seen videos of these orbs in which it appeared as if the person uh, who, who couldn't see the orb but was playing with it, the orb was responding, it seemed to the gestures of, of the person. Now, I think in theory it's possible that sometimes these orbs represent some sort of an autonomous or semi-autonomous, perhaps a conscious life form, uh, for all I know, but... Uh, it really takes a photographic expert to judge these things. And, and I think it's healthy to be skeptical of, of that sort of thing, to have a, an open-minded skepticism. Future Shock asks, What are your thoughts on the idea that this material reality or Earth is controlled by a malevolent entity who controls a few or many world leaders with promises of wealth and power and receives blood sacrifices and children in return to be part of the same cabal that protects pedophiles like somebody and somebody else who was Epstein, uh, who was very clearly murdered to prevent him from testifying I think that's uh, highly speculative, way beyond uh, anything I would like to venture into. Some of those ideas come from ancient Gnosticism. Uh, I have to go back yet again to my fundamental understanding. We are all connected. There's no malevolent entity out there but ourselves. Instead of pointing a finger at this person and that person and this group and that group, look inside of yourself. That's where you will find the problem. And it may take a lot of work to unroot it if you're so convinced about uh, these malevolent entities out there and so certain that they're not inside of you. Well, we're all swimming in the same ocean of consciousness. We all have to deal with it together. There is no one to blame. There is no one to blame whatsoever. But, the, but there is the work in which we're all engaged of waking up. Adam Bell says, What topics do I least like or don't agree with in parapsychology? No, I like every topic in parapsychology, and I have no disagreements, really, with any of them. If I have a disagreement, it might be with the conspiracy theory people, uh, who are quite separate from parapsychologists. The, the one thing that parapsychology has in common with conspiracy theories is that they're all marginalized. And I think a lot of people come to the New Thinking Aloud channel because they see, well, he's speaking out in favor of, of a marginalized subject that's not not accepted by the mainstream, and I accept this, these other uh, batches of marginalized subjects. Maybe they have something in common. Well, maybe they do. And maybe what they have in common ultimately is that the answer is within us. And I have to say this over and over and over, especially to people who are inclined to conspiracy theory thinking. Look within yourself. You know, I am a lifelong liberal Democrat. 
which, and I can tell you, like practically every other lifelong liberal Democrat, I'm horrified by uh, the behavior of the current president of the United States. I think it's an absolute disgrace. But I also have to acknowledge that President Trump and I share the same ground of being, that he's here for a purpose. That the universe created him just as it created me. And uh, ultimately, I feel at one with the universe, which means at one with President Trump. Not that I support him or would ever vote for him, understand, but I can't really hate President Trump. It'd be like hating myself. Angus Timmons says, Jeffrey, do you think Pierre Grimes will return to your show anytime soon? Do you agree with Pierre Grimes' method of interpreting dreams, and will he return? Well, you know, Pierre Grimes, uh, last time he was here, was 94 years old. And that was in an era when he could travel by airplane. I don't know when that will happen. And uh, the last I heard, he had health problems. He's, I, as I recall, he's dealing with cancer. Uh, I enjoy his dream interpretation method, um, but I didn't feel that it fit me as well as other dream interpretation methods with which I'm familiar. Uh, nevertheless, I love Pierre Grimes. He's a wonderful man and a wonderful guest. And somebody is telling me that was Kid Energy who asked that question. Manuel Orantia says, would I interview Tom Campbell? Maybe uh, I, I would. I, I don't have a strong feeling about Tom Campbell, but I also know he has plenty of exposure on YouTube already. He doesn't need me to interview him. And you don't need me in order to understand his material. It's, it's out there uh, a lot. So uh, I have no objection to interviewing him, but I have a list of maybe 40 people already I'm trying to get So uh, who, who would be higher on the list. Tyanite says, I've always wanted to ask you why you moved to Albuquerque. I live in Albuquerque as well. And the answer is, uh, we were living in Las Vegas. And it was getting very hot in the summer of 2017 in July. There were 10 days that didn't get above 110 degrees. It was very painful. Um, we felt we had to move anyway. We were looking for a new house. And we thought, if we can move to a new house, why not move to a new city? And we loved the desert. We wanted a desert city with a good airport but cooler than Las Vegas. So that meant not Phoenix and not Tucson, and uh, also not a cold city like Boise or um, too large a, a metropolitan area like Denver. Well, that left Albuquerque. And we started looking in Albuquerque, and we found this wonderful home uh, at a fabulous price. It's worked out very well. We've been here now over two years, and we're very happy in Albuquerque. And uh, Tyanite says, have you ever encountered a charlatan in the field of parapsychology? Did it change your view of that section of the research? Well, 
You know, many years ago, I hosted a parapsychology conference in Berkeley, and I invited as one of the speakers Jay Levy, who was at that time a medical doctor, and he was the director of uh, what is now known as the Rhine Research Center in Durham, North Carolina. Back then, it was the Foundation for Research on the Nature of Man. And Dr. Levy was found to be engaged in fraudulently manipulating the computer program that was running a series of fascinating experiments, in retrospect kind of cruel, uh, because he was giving electroshocks to mice and seeing if they would use precognition to avoid being electroshocked. Um, it looked like it was getting great results. It turned out to be not so. So that's an example of uh, a fraud. It was exposed by J.B. Ryan himself. Um, it didn't change my view of uh, uh, parapsychology overall. But yes, that particular line of research uh, has been discredited, and, and it hasn't been replicated, which is just as well, I think, because it's, it's kind of cruel uh, to the animals involved. Andre says, what are your afterlife beliefs? And <laughs> I have to laugh because there is an underlying premise. Uh, what are your afterlife beliefs? And I guess... I've harped over and over and over again about the idea that um, consciousness probably precedes the physical universe. The afterlife itself might be an illusion. I think uh, we are one with the afterlife already. Um, but yes, I think the research on reincarnation is, 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 has to be taken very seriously. I think there's good evidence that people do reincarnate. And I have to say, looking at all the evidence of mediumistic communications, there seems to be good evidence that uh, people can communicate through mediums after they die. Uh, so I'm inclined to accept it. At the same hand time, I'm also inclined to realize it might all be the manifestation of the consciousness of living people. As I say, we're all one. And when you start with the premise that we're all one, or if you prefer, we're all interconnected, then the very questions that you ask uh, have to be modified uh, in light of that premise. David Smith says, how do you self-hypnotize yourself? We probably are all self-hypnotizing ourselves all the time, every day. But if I want to do it deliberately, I, I can put myself through a, a count of ten. I, I, you know, simple hypnotic instructions. I learned self-hypnosis as, as a high school student. And, you know, it's like learning how to drive it or learning how to ride a bicycle. At first you follow the steps. Eventually it becomes like second nature. And those steps, you can find those steps anywhere. There are hundreds of books out about self-hypnosis. The Forever Conscious Research Channel. Are you familiar with or heard of summoning anomalies in the sky? I've been doing it, but barely have anyone covering it. Can you suggest reaching out or to a book uh, suggestions? Uh, 
Well, summoning anomalies in the sky, that's what Ted Owens used to do. He could summon up thunderstorms, heat waves, cold waves, UFO appearances, power blackouts. It could be thought of as psychokinesis, or it could be thought of as just an example of the power of the human mind to manifest, to influence the dream that we live in. Uh, and yes, I mean... There are lots of books uh, about it. There are lots of YouTube channels about it. I've even done, as I recall, a, an impresence at one time. You know, you can sit and stare at a cloud and make it evaporate uh, or make it shape, take the shape of a face so it starts talking to you. Uh, these things can be done. It's Again, it's an example of the dreamlike quality of reality. We are such stuff as dreams are are made of. Um, can, uh, are there books? I, I don't particularly recommend any books. I, I would recommend trying to go a little deeper than that. But if you did want a book, read The PK Man. That would be a good starting point if you haven't read it already. A. Cummins says, What are my thoughts on the concept of sin and condemnation? Um, sin and condemnation. You know, uh, one of the very first in-presence monologues that I did was about self-love. And I think we are all entitled to love ourselves unconditionally because at base, we share the ground of being with the whole universe. We are spiritual beings. And that means, unconditionally means, you love yourself no matter what you have ever thought, what you have ever said, or what you have ever done. None of those things are reasons not to love yourself. Now, that doesn't mean that you should love all of your behaviors. If you've done something uh, I, something bad, you should make amends. You should correct your behavior. You, you can improve yourself and correct your behavior, uh, but you can always love yourself unconditionally, no matter what. Peter Seamus Gunn asks, I believe that you went into trading. Were you tempted to employ ESP for financial gain. Well, yes, I was tempted to do that, as, as a matter of fact. I can't say it was terribly successful, but I can tell you this. Every trader, ultimately, uh, unless they're doing pure mechanical trading using computer programming, they are relying upon intuition. And intuition often, if not always, has an element of ESP. So, but it's about manifesting. It's about the dream in which you're living is a reflection of your consciousness. I feel blessed in, in my life. I'm surrounded by beauty and love and uh, meaning in my life. And I can say that uh, I've been blessed because... It's a reflection of how I feel inwardly. 
Now, I can't promise that that would be the same for everybody, but I think that's the tendency for things. So I don't see um, that it's necessarily bad to employ ESP for financial gain if if you can. But I will say this. Many of us are conditioned to have emotional attitudes, subconscious attitudes about it because we believe money is a bad thing. And if you have that uh, as part of your emotional makeup, then it's going to affect uh, how well you do. And so when I deliberately endeavor to employ associated remote viewing for making money, I think some of my own unconscious attitudes uh, interfered with it. <clears throat> the Full Monty asks, Jeffrey, <clears throat> oh, the Seth material. No, that question's been asked, answered already. Any thoughts on universalism, says Agoratos Henosis. I'm not sure what you mean, of course, by universalism. But I can say this. My friend Daryl Robert Schoon, who has been interviewed many times on this channel, is a spiritualist minister with the Temple of Universality in Tucson, Arizona. You can look up on their website. To the extent that universalism means what I've expressed many times now in this live stream, that we are one with the ground of being of the whole universe, that we can embrace the whole universe and all of its magnitude and all of its good and all of its evil, all of its promise, all of its despair. It is all part of who we are. Yeah, I, I embrace that idea 100%. I don't identify with only half of the universe, like uh, uh, only the good stuff and not the, not all of it. I think the universe is here for a purpose. And I suspect that it's a good purpose, including everything that we, from our human perspective, think of as bad and tragic. Armando Solorzano asks, Jeff, could UFOs be psychokinetic emanations from the collective unconscious? Yes, or from individuals like Ted Owens, who could conjure up UFOs. Naman Jane asks a question. Are you a vegetarian? I think ideally I would be a vegetarian. You might say I'm a lapsed vegetarian because uh, my inclinations have always been to be a vegetarian. But um, I was raised by a mother who said moderation in all things, including moderation. So I'm, I'm very far from a perfect vegetarian. Ryan. My question is, do you have any recommendations for somebody looking to pursue a career in parapsychology or psychedelic research in today's society where institutions indoctrinate mainstream thought? <clears throat> well, you've got to be willing to buck the tide. You've got to be willing to face the consequences of uh, bucking the tide. You know, Traditionally, the recommendation that people give to 
young people who say, I want to come into parapsychology. The, the standard advice that every experienced parapsychologist gives is first establish yourself in a conventional field where you have some career security. That's the standard advice. Now, I never followed that advice, and I have no regrets. So, my advice is for you, look deep within yourself. Follow your passion. Struggle if you need to struggle. And understand yourself. How, how much are you willing to buck the tide? You have to know that inwardly. I, you know... I don't think standard advice is, is good for anybody. Donal Moriarty says, I know telepathy is real. How do you think it works? Uh, and again, it comes back to this. I say it over and over again. It's the most fundamental truth. It's like the kindergarten of metaphysics, but sometimes the lessons of kindergarten are the hardest to grasp. We are all one. That's how telepathy works. We share one mind. That's how remote viewing works. That's how people can sit and concentrate. Uh, in, in, in my interview with Sean McNamara, which will be released in about a month from now, suggests he can become one with a pinwheel spinning across the room and make it spin. Okay. We are now at the 90 minute mark, which is when I said I'll stop. I have a little more energy, maybe for those who want to hang out another 15 minutes. Antonio Lavia writes, do I have any new books in the future? Well, Right now, our big project is transcribing the, the many New Thinking Aloud interviews, and hopefully there will be some books, because I'll tell you, above all, I'd love to see this channel reach a million people. I'd love for each of you who are part of this channel right now to let your friends know about it. Let's, let's let it spread, let it grow, and new books based on the uh, transcripts of the interviews, and they're also being translated into many languages, is a way for me to reach out more to uh, markets where people interview uh, authors of books. I haven't published a book in 20 years, so I'm thinking of, of doing that mostly as a vehicle for letting more and more people know about new thinking aloud. And let me say this as, as well, since we're starting to wrap up, I know uh, not all of you who are uh, viewing right now are amongst our volunteers, but our volunteers are doing exciting things. Our volunteers are translating and transcribing the interviews, helping to redesign the website, creating a searchable database where you can type in any search term that you can think of. And it will give you hot links to the moments in each of our interviews where these Terms are being discussed. Our volunteers are creating videos, short video trailers based on the interviews to reach out to young people, to the hip-hop market, to uh, people who are interested in ideas that are titillating and flashy. Well, a three-minute trailer will be, but the interview itself will be very serious. And I think uh, there's no reason why 
people who are even young people, even uneducated people, can't sit and listen and appreciate a serious interview. We hope to draw more of them in. So we have a weekly newsletter for our volunteers. Uh, it also goes out to donors and supporters of New Thinking Aloud. If you're a viewer and you'd like to uh, get more involved, take your viewing experience to the next level, send an email to me, friends at newthinkingaloud.com, and become part of our team of volunteers. I welcome you to do that. Now, I will take um, Dossie Richards says, what's the craziest PK demonstration you've seen in person? Well, I've seen Uri Geller take a, a a bean, uh, a mung bean, and uh, hold it in his hand and watch it sprout while it was right in his hand. That's the <clears throat> probably the craziest thing that occurred right in front of my eyes. Now, many people think Uri Geller is a total fraud. I don't know anybody uh, who's able to do that. But even if he did that one, my friend Saul Paul Sirag witnessed the opposite. He knew that Geller could do that. So he handed Geller a bean sprout, a mung bean sprout, and he uh, said, uh, okay, make the clock run backwards. And Geller closed his hand over the bean sprout. A moment later, when he opened his hand, it was no longer a bean sprout, it was a bean. Now, you might think that's a cheap magic trick, but Geller had no idea that that was going to be sprung on him. So Saul Paul, my friend, surprised him with that. Okay, just a couple more um, I'll take. Doogie Woogie. Does Jeff think that the paranormal and E.T. mystical experiences are all from the same place, either from somewhere else or from within ourselves? Cheers. Or is that Patrick Leahy who said that? I, oh, no, that's Doogie Woogie. So, you see, there are different levels. And, and as I've expressed, you know, at one level, things seem one way. There's a level at which, you know, the ETs and aliens come from a particular plane of reality. You could call it the hyperspace or the astral plane or uh, the star system of Arcturus, some other place. Uh, and then at a deeper level, we all share the same ground of being. So I'm trying to go to the deepest level where we all share the same ground of being. It doesn't mean that these other levels aren't also self-contained and, and real uh, from within their framework. But bottom line, we all share the ground of being. Doogie Woogie, are the yin-yang pins for sale? Yeah, uh, they are for sale. They cost twelve ninety nine, but we haven't been selling them because of the fact that uh, we haven't had the shopping cart working on the website. And uh, one of our volunteers is helping us to fix that right now. It, it's about getting the shipping data in because depending on where you're located, the shipping costs vary. So uh, hopefully that'll be fixed soon. Um, in the meantime, if, if you want to make a donation to the New Thinking Allowed Foundation, we can accept your donation. And um, if you send me a note at the same time, I'll send you a pin. It's, you just have to appreciate that, uh, whatever. <laughs> okay, 
Patrick Leahy says, From the Buddha, why is it easy for evil people to work together, even if they hate each other, than it is for good people to work together, even if they love each other? Uh, Patrick, I don't accept the premise of of your question, <laughs> actually. Uh, I don't know that that is the case. Uh, I, I'm inclined to think it's probably not the case. But, yes, good people sometimes have trouble working together. Uh, as I say, I'm a lifelong Democrat, and I recall the famous quote by uh, the humorist Will Rogers, who said, I don't belong to any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. <laughs> And uh, whereas the uh, Republicans seem to be unified and in lockstep with each other, uh, maybe that's what you mean. I don't know. Um, at the end of the day, uh, you know what? I We've been going now for over 90 minutes. I can tell I'm getting a little weary. Uh, I'm <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to give... Uh, sensible answers to any more questions now. Let me say to all of you who have been with me, I love you. I'm so delighted with the support that I receive from viewers and the, especially the support that I receive from our volunteers. I want to acknowledge uh, the volunteers who have been monitoring uh, the questions uh, that have been coming in, Emmy and Jim and uh, Ali and uh, others. I also want to acknowledge Barbara Burton, who is one of our volunteers who first proposed that we start doing live streams. Thank you, Barbara. Uh, I want to thank all of you for being here. We will endeavor to save and collect these questions. I know I didn't answer them all, uh, but I'm uh, thrilled to have this opportunity to connect in a, in a more immediate way with the New Thinking Aloud audience. We've got lots of new interviews planned. We have many new exciting developments planned. Thank you all so much for being with me.